Hi, I'm Michael from Pittsburgh. This is Laurel from Oakland. Hey, I'm Allison from Cincinnati. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Simon Pegg, actor, writer, memoirist, geek. His new book is called Nerd Do Well. It's the story of how, well, let's be honest, a nerd did well. And a nerd did well through nerdiness. Almost all of Pegg's work has drawn on his identity as not just creator, but also fan. He co-created and starred in the British sitcom Space, which saw the world of the sitcom, or sort of the romantic sitcom, through a pop culture lens. He made his reputation here in the United States with the hit Zomcom, Shaun of the Dead. That's Zomcom, half romantic comedy, half zombie film. He was co-writer and star of Hot Fuzz, which was, again, a tribute slash satire of the action comedy. And he recently co-wrote and starred in Paul, which was, again, a sort of half-parody, half-tribute to, in this case, the extraterrestrial films of one Mr. Steven Spielberg. And how's this for geek credit? He was Scotty in the reboot of Star Trek. What binds all of these projects together, of course, is a deep appreciation for popular storytelling, including the kind of genre stories that, let's just say, don't have the mainstream artistic credibility of, say, uh, I don't know, 18th century period drama. In other words, they're geeky. Simon Pegg, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. How, how do you feel about um, nerd both as a cultural category and as an identity? It's a, it's a big commitment to put it on the cover of your book. It's an interesting one. I think the word is ever-evolving and uh, has morphed over the years. It does come from the phrase ne'er-do-well. I mean, that's where the word is derived from. It was just shortening of that, which then became ned and then nerd and then, you know, meaning someone on the fringe of society. But ne'er-do-well means a sort of criminal, a sort of, uh, you know, a, a someone who's a, a little bit shady. And um, But then eventually it, come, it came to... And I think it was because of the onomatopoeia of the word nerd. It became sort of someone who was a bit sh- shrimpy and kind of the revenge of the nerd's nerd. And then that became that that's that changed into something. The word geek suddenly became okay, which was you know an enthusiast and a person who liked their stuff, and usually their stuff was pretty rarefied sort of science fiction fancy that kind of stuff and that nerd recently has been taken back too, so it was also just a nice play on words, and I figured you know that's a good title so i i, I took a i took a a, a risk of of self-proclaiming my nerdism um in the name of wordplay <laughs> I, I interviewed this i interviewed this guy one time who wrote a book about the history of nerddom and i didn't realize what a contemporary construct it was because i you know i was born in 1981 and so the birth of nerd actually happened in the mid to late 70s as a as an idea and a word yeah 
Um, so it's always existed for me, but that's something that you're a couple years older than me. It happened within your lifetime. Um, and, and it happened within certain things that are still cultural touchstones of nerddom, like Star Wars, which you yeah. write about in the book. You did like amateur theater and stuff like that as a kid. Did, did you think of yourself as being a member of a nerd or geek group? Not really, because I think one of the things about nerdiness as it stands now is that it's it's more about adults being um, sort of passionate about slightly infantile things. When you're a kid and you're into Star Wars, you're not a nerd. You, I mean, you're just a kid. I mean, it's it's it was kind of very common. Virtually every child in my class had some interest in it, particularly the boys. And um, I think the way that the word has evolved, it now means people that are kind of um, not afraid to uh, pursue infantile regression. You know, it's like uh, you, you only have to look at what's on uh, the movie theaters at the moment. The big marquee films are all fairly arguably childish fare. You know, it's robots and superheroes and comic book stuff. And that's kind of been made acceptable as an adult interest by the... Uh, the the tr the transformation of of this this idea of the nerd you know so when I was a kid nerds would, it was different it was kind of you know in the mid seventies or whatever nerds were the guys in Animal House and the guys in Revenge of the Nerds the sort of skinny dweeby guys with the glasses and the the giant underwear shorts who would be debagged by men with large chests you know that that seems to be less less applicable to that word now it's been hijacked. A lot of these uh, nerd stories are kind of uh, power fantasies. They're they're stuff that, as you said, comes from kids and adolescents who, you know, kids have no power at all. Um, and adolescents are trying to figure out how to get power in the, an agency right. in yeah, the yeah, world. Yeah. Um, how do you think those stories are are different when they're applied to... Uh, when they're applied to people who are 30 or 40 years old than when they're applied to, uh, you know, 12-year-olds? I think what it, you could possibly attach it to this sort of the, the rise of the beta male, you know, that kind of, particularly men as well. Although, you know, the, the, there's a very thriving n n female nerd population now and self-proclaimed and, and, and very active. But I think possibly what it is, and I'm theorizing on the go here, is that um I did ask you to come here with a position <laughs> paper. <laughs> if I could just look at my notes. Um it's possible that, that guys and girls that were perhaps not uh at the forefront of dominance in their classrooms growing up applied themselves in such a way that some of the other bigger, less intelligent kids did and uh, and are now in positions of power and it, it seems to me that like the world is kind of run by those pe people now you know if you think of like I can't imagine Mark Zuckerberg or or Bill Gates or uh, you know in the film world people like Spielberg or Scorsese being particularly active on the sports field the kind of place where dominance reigns in the classroom but now they're controlling the, you know, the the, the media output and, and, and with the likes of the first two, you know, kind of this silicon um, revolution and 
now it's like they're all the bosses and and now the people who control that means of expression are are the ones relaying their fantasies to the world and uh, that's what we're seeing in cinema and literature and and comic books and what have you it's kind of possibly you know um the fantasies of beta males I want to play a clip from uh, the television show Spaced, which um, features you. You're the you're one of the stars of the show, mm-hmm. and your character works at a comic book store. And there are two scenes in succession we're about to hear. The first one is you uh, uh, essentially telling off a, like <laughs> nine or ten year old kid. Uh, for wanting to buy a Jar Jar Binks doll. Um, and then your boss entering and uh, and uh, delivering a stern reproach to right. you. You are so blind. You so do not understand. You weren't there at the beginning. You don't know how good it was, how important. This is it for you, this jumped-up firework display of a toy advert. People like you make me sick. What's wrong with you? Take your pocket money and get out! (laughs) Tim, can I have a word with you in my office? Yes. The Phantom Menace was 18 months ago, Tim. I know, Bilbo. Okay, just, it still hurts. You know, that kid wanted a Jar Jar doll. Kids like Jar Jar. Why? What about the Ewoks? Hey, they were rubbish. You don't complain about them. Yeah, but Jar Jar Binks makes the Ewoks look like... Shaft. I've had enough, Tim. But Bilbo... Look, I know how you feel, right? I really do. But this can't go on. What are you trying to say, Bilbo? I'm going to have to let you go. <laughs> I thought this scene was, was really great because I, you can feel, watching this, how real the passion is behind your tirade. <laughs> um, and at the same time... You know, your character is getting fired by the owner of a comic book store for essentially being too nerdy. <laughs> yeah, that was um, that was interesting. I, I'd seen the I'd seen the uh, the Star Wars uh, Phantom Menace um, in between seasons. Uh, I went to see it in America after making the first series. I had a bit of money f- uh, for the first time ever, and I thought, I'll you know, I'll spend it on a pilgrimage to go see my the next uh, installment of my beloved uh, story. And obviously it, it was uh, hugely disappointing to me. And I was pretty angry about it, you know, in, in, a, in a way that isn't at all sad or pathetic. <laughs> and, um, I, well, you, I mean, you were, you, were far from the, you were far from the only one. I remember that yes, time. Yes, of course. It was a, there, there was a veritable riot, in, uh, at least in, in words. And I think uh, it's based, I had this mouthpiece in my character, Tim, who was essentially a, a version of me, you know, almost a, an aspirational version of me in a way. I always wanted to, I, I kind of had a thing about it. I'd love to work in a comic shop. I'd like to be a better skateboarder, a better artist. And so Tim embodied certain aspirational designs of mine. Um, but he also became this this wounded, uh, spurned lover, you know, when it came to Star Wars and, and was able to articulate my feelings about... Um, about that particular film, and and um, so yeah, when I was delivering the, the, those those lines to that child about how stupid he was for wanting a Jar Jar doll, I, I meant it. <laughs> I mean, w- one of the um, w- one of the interesting things that uh, that sort of came out in my mind as I was watching that is, you know, the, the relationship between a geek and the thing that he typically he, but sometimes she is geeky over, is so yeah. deep and passionate. 
and it's so personal to that person. It's it's about something that speaks directly to their deepest, darkest stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you are a geek, you don't necessarily have control over that thing, even when that thing is a fantasy about control. Absolutely. And ownership and kind of, I mean, that, that, that bit in space is, is as much a satire of my feelings as it is a kind of demonstration of them as well. It's, it, it's funny to me that, that it made me that kind of upset. It's funny to me that something like that matters that much to me that it would annoy me. It would actually impact on the surface of my emotions in such a way that I would, it could change how I felt, you know. And it is because we, you know, these things, I guess, we as uh, as geeks or nerds or whatever, we latch onto these things and they become our own, you know. I mean, usually in nerd cultures, the, the, the more underground, the better, you know. It's like people getting into bands when they've just started and then dropping them later on when they feel that they're too popular. And, um, you know, I guess even though Star Wars was a, a global phenomenon, to a degree, it felt like, you know, this new series of films gate crashed it and, and, and suddenly it wasn't so special anymore because little tiny children were, were, you know, endorsing it by buying the merchandise, which, you know, kind of um, slightly, I don't know, diminished it a bit, I guess. You're like turned, you're literally turned into that little tiny child in that clip from the show. There's the, yeah. the little tiny child runs screaming and crying from the store. And your the second part of that clip is you running, screaming yeah. and crying from. Because Tim is a, you know, he's essentially a big kid. That's what, that's what we are as kind of, uh, I mean, there's a whole argument about it. I, I was reading, I remember reading at university, Baudrillard, uh, his, I can't remember the name of the book, but, you know, he has this big theory about um, infantile regression, about, about our desire to be children. It's a kind of, it's a need that we have to escape the realities of adulthood, which is accommodated by the means of production because it suits them to keep us in a state of childishness. And I think it's true. We do, if we're permitted to remain children, we will, you know. And uh, if all we're offered to uh, stimulate us is bangs and flashes and, 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 and sort of, you know, very um, black and white tales of good and evil, then that's what we'll consume and gladly. That's why, you know, in the book I argue that Star Wars was was like that for the post-Vietnam American public, you know, who were dealing with an awfully confusing situation where the, the, the usual goods and evils of, uh, of, of conflict were completely blurred and no one knew who was the good guy. And suddenly Star Wars came along and it laid it all out again, nice, broad strokes, and everyone just leapt on it because that's how they wanted to feel. We'll talk zombie philosophy with Simon Pegg after a break. It's The Sound of Young America from PRI, Public Radio International. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by VG Kids, printers of t-shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble-rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at VGKids.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is actor, writer, and comedian Simon Pegg. Some of his biggest projects have been collaborations with Nick Frost and Edgar Wright. They include the TV show Spaced and the films Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. 
Here's a clip from Shaun of the Dead featuring Simon and his real life and on screen best friend, Nick Frost. You got your pint? You got your pig snacks? What more do you want? You know what we should do tomorrow? Keep drinking. We'll have a bloody merry first thing. Have a bite of the king's head, couple of the little princess. We'll stagger back in. Back at the bar for shots. How's that for a slice of fried gold? No. Come on, man. Talk to me. She said if she stayed with me, she'd end up coming in here every night for the rest of her life like these sad old b****s, drinking herself to death, wondering what the hell happened. That is harsh. I want to talk to you about your relationship with your uh, collaborators, Edgar Wright and and Nick Frost. And I want to talk to you about the films that you made with them. But tell me a little bit first about how you met Nick, who who is uh, uh, one of your closest friends as well as one of your closest collaborators and a, and a big part of this book. He is, I, I, and I'd say he's my closest friend. And 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 um, I met him at a time in my life when I I didn't I was too naive to think that I would make friends again. You know, you think you make all your friends at school. There's that quote from Stand by Me when Richard Dreyfuss says. I didn't have any friends like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, who does? Well, I do, you know. And I met Nick when I was 22. And um, quite by chance, as I suppose any meeting is. But he, he, I moved to London, to North London, from Bristol, where I was at university, uh, with my girlfriend. And she got a job at a local restaurant next to the apartment we bought, which was very random. We just, like in space, we looked in that free paper and found a place that seemed right, and we got it. And um, she had to get a job and came back from work one day and said, there's a guy at work. He's really funny. And uh, I think he wants to be a stand-up comic. Can you give him a hand in um, in sort of pursuing that? And I was like, yeah, sure. I was, you know, I was a young stand-up at the time. I was barely that sort of experienced, but I nevertheless was more experienced than Nick. You were experienced enough, as you describe in the book, to do a complicated routine that involved you dressing as a lifeguard. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, and carrying a goldfish bowl around with me. Um, and uh, that's another story, the weirdness of, of carrying an actual fish around. Anyway, um, but I sort of set Nick up with his first few gigs and uh, uh, took him out to clubs and we were hanging out. And I felt kind of a sort of... You know, Nick's like uh, 18 months younger than me. And... Um, I kind of liked having a, a slightly paternal relationship with him at that, that time because it was like he was a young guy and I was also uh, fresh out of university and all clever and stuff and uh, took him out to some gigs and, and he, he he definitely had a, a something. I mean, he, he was very, very funny to hang out with and, and even though when he was doing the gigs, he couldn't quite translate his natural funniness uh, to a performance you know he his ideas were there but his delivery was a little uncertain and like me he doesn't like something if he can't be good at it straight away so after about 10 gigs he quit you know and went back to waiting tables but by that time him and me were thick as thieves and we've been spending loads of time together so when Jessica and myself came to to, to make space we decided to write a part for Nick and it was like we'll, we'll tell him he's an actor We'll tell the producers he's an actor and uh, see what they say. And there was another guy in our sort of version of SAG, which is called Equity, uh, called Nick Frost. And they sort of looked him up on the on the database, whatever it was in those days, a Rolodex <laughs> or something. It wasn't the internet. And they went, yeah, okay, fine. And so we kind of <laughs> smuggled this civilian into the world of acting. And it was Nick. And, you know, that was that was all all he needed, really. I don't I don't claim any more sort of responsibility for his career than that because 
if he hadn't been able to do it, he would have vanished very quickly. But um, he, 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 he's very good, so he's still here. Where did the voice of Spaced, uh, that was this uh, collaboration uh, essentially between the, the four of you, mm. um, and, and was as, as sort of textually dense as a sitcom could be, um, uh, as I said, sort of about the, your character's relationship to popular culture and, uh, as well as their relationship to each other, um, and the relationships thereof. Um, where did that voice come from? Do you think? Well, first and foremost, it was a collaboration between Jess and myself. We, we'd, um, we'd met on a sketch show. Um, and then I'd gone on to work on something that Edgar directed the first thing time I ever worked with Edgar and we needed a, a female for the cast and I immediately suggested Jess cause she'd impressed me so much. And then Jess and I worked very well in this show. It was called asylum. It was, no one saw it. It was a little cable odd show about a, a, an insane asylum full of comedians. Uh, we were offered a, a, a show, you know, the, the, the Paramount comedy channel, a, a producer from the Paramount comedy channel was moving to a large TV network and had offered us this uh, vehicle. And we, in, in a very naive way, sort of said, yeah, we'd like to do that, but we want to be able to write it. We want control. And that was because all the 20-something sitcoms of the age that were out at that time, things like Coupling and Friends, and there were other shows called The Game On, and there was another, all didn't say anything to us about our lives. You know, they would, there was nobody in those shows we could relate to whatsoever. It was, it was it just this odd world of good-looking people drinking in sort of wearing strangely adult clothes. <laughs> and uh, we we wanted to write something that was from the heart, you know. And Jess had this whole thing about um, trying to find an apartment in London. And, and I had this whole thing. i just broken up with a girl. I kind of felt like I wanted to sort of write something from the point of view of a wounded soul, you know. And also channel in... Uh, both of us wanted to channel in our sort of uh, love of popular culture and have it be almost as though spaced is tim and daisy's account of their life and everything you see being represented is how they would describe it you know it's like a metaphorical layer that you see uh when you watch the show and so you know if they go into if they try and break into a uh some sort of um building to get the drawing back you know they immediately picture it being like the matrix and that's kind of what mike does and um the only person we could think of to direct it that who could possibly, you know, do something with it was Edgar because I just worked with him and I've been amazed at his 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 talent was just extraordinary. I want to ask you about the idea of uh, the wound in your character, the hurt in Tim. Yeah. So uh, Brian Posehn, who's a stand-up comedian who's who's been a guest on the show a couple times, has had a, named one of his albums "Nerd Rage." Right. Um, and, and I think there's this there's this part of geekiness that is motivated forward by a woundedness, yeah. you know, sort of like the ferociousness of a, of a wounded lion or something like that. <laughs> does that, does that like, does that resonate for you? The idea of there being some kind of, there being a little bit of smoldering hurt behind the, especially the, especially geeky aggression. Yeah. It's an interesting point, actually. I like Brian. I think he's very funny. I, I think, um, I think there is something about, there is an anger in nerds. I mean, you, you see it on the internet, there's a lot of hate on the internet. You know, there's a lot of people just decrying things just for the enjoyment of experiencing anger. I think possibly it, it's related to the fact that maybe nerds are people that have escaped into a sort of fantasy world because the real world is is not so nice for them. And, and maybe they're mad about that. And so maybe 
they've they've carried that sort of uh that sort of rage into their into their second life and i don't mean the computer game i think uh you know tim is definitely he's been wounded by his girlfriend so he's angry about that he's he's a frustrated artist who should be doing a lot better than he is and he's angry about that he's angry at george lucas because of, but it's all i think it's all probably um projection he's projecting other inadequacies onto these things and because it's easier to get angry about them than the truth maybe which is that he's an underachiever or that he's a coward or that he he couldn't keep his girlfriend happy you know and so these other things become the focus of his rage um that makes sense to me you know i mean star trek is very evidently uh one of the top sort of nerd fascinations because it is a world that offers inclusion for everyone it's it's a world where there is acceptance and a future where there is sort of i know people there are still throwdowns with various uh nefarious races but generally speaking it's like an utopia uh this sort of uh that that the, the federation world and i think people kind of long for that a little bit it's a society where people would be accepted and i think that's the reason it it attracts people who are um perhaps on the fringes of the mainstream because they see it as a world that's that they wouldn't feel crap about themselves in, you know, and that would make anyone angry. <laughs> it's interesting that people kind of see Star Trek as something that they can be a part of in a way that say Star Wars, they wouldn't, they might identify with Han Solo or with Luke Skywalker or something like that and imagine yeah. themselves as that. Whereas I feel like people who are into the world of Star Trek imagine themselves as just one of the people that lives on that ship in that world. Absolutely. And I think that's because Star Wars is more aspirational and the the characters are more archetypal. They're more sort of Joseph, you know, that, that kind of Han Solo is the kind of smooth hero you want to be or the boy who does good in Luke Skywalker or the princess or the father, you know, all these archetypes that crop up in that story and make it what it is. Whereas Star Trek is just this kind of, you know, this proposition, this world where all these people just coexist and, yeah, you could be one. I think, you know, weirdly enough, tying this all together, I think that's one of the reasons why zombies are so popular is because that that world offers a, a survival situation where you stand a chance, you know, because that's why I get so bummed about fast zombies is because it, it, it takes a little bit of that away. But, you know, if anyone is careful and, and, and does the right thing, they could probably do okay in a zombie apocalypse. You know, you just got to be, you don't have to be the Terminator in that situation. And so it offers a fantasy world where a normal person could possibly survive. And I think that's similar with, uh, with Star Trek. In Shaun of the Dead, uh, uh, which you co-wrote with Edgar Wright, um, it is a essentially a collision between the zombie film and the romantic comedy. Yeah, and it's also a, a collision between the sort of uh, uh, the extravagance of a world being taken over by zombies and the reticence and reserve that is uh, typical of uh, England and indeed to some extent Britain. Yeah. Um, and I want to play. Uh, I want to play a scene that is very uh, exemplary of that from the film. So, in this scene, your character is realizing that his stepfather may have been turned into a zombie. Liz, Sean, Mum, hi. Um, I was going to call you. Are, you. are you okay? Yes. Yeah. What? Are you sure? Some men tried to get into the house. Well, are they still there? I'm not sure. We've shut the curtains. Did you try the police? Well. I thought about it. Well, are you okay? Did they hurt you? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Mum? Well, they were a bit bitey. 
Mum, have you been bitten? No, but Philip has. Oh, OK. Has she been bitten? No, Philip has. Oh, OK. Listen, Mum, what sort of state is he in? Oh, he's fine. Bit under the weather. I see. What's the deal? We may have to kill my stepdad. Listen, Mum, sit tight, OK? You're not safe there. We're coming over. I don't want to cause a fuss. We're coming to get you, Barbara! So... Zombies are this really powerful thing and have always been a very, I think, a very American thing. And I know that you have passionate opinions about the difference between the fast zombie and the (laughs) slow zombie. The slow zombie being the classic zombie that you can outrun but goes on forever. Yeah. Um, One of the things that's interesting to me about the difference between those two kinds of zombies is that a, a slow zombie feels like a human being that is stripped of will that a slow zombie is a human being that, and I'm not super zombie guy, so you you can feel free to tell me that I'm an idiot, but um, it, it feels like a human being that doesn't have any agency at all, just moves not only in this herd, but just inexorably forward towards a death that will never come. Yeah. Right. Because they're undead. And a fast zombie is just as sort of like an evil creature because a fast zombie is actually making choices in a way that a slow zombie isn't. Exactly. I think that that utterly nails it. It's a fast zombie suddenly has an agenda and is, has momentum and, and all that, uh, all those things, uh, remove the tragedy from the zombie, which I think is really makes it an interesting monster in that, you know, a human being stripped of will, as you say, is is actually deeply sympathetic, and you, you, your your enemy in that world is 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 yourself, and you know they are a walking, groaning metaphor for our own end. You know, they are inevitable. They they can, they come at you, and no matter how much you try and avoid them with you know fitness and good food, they just will get you in the end, no matter how rubbish and silly the death is, you are going to die. And and they are the walking dead. They are the walking representation of our greatest fear, of our most, our deepest psychological problems are caused by this thing. And, um, And in that, they are far more interesting than any other movie monster because I don't really feel sorry for Dracula, even if he's got a crush on Mina Harker. I don't particularly pity werewolves when they're, you know, tearing people apart because they're our bestiality and they're... But but there's something interesting about zombies in that they're just a bit sad. And you feel like... That's the great thing about Romero's films is that he managed to create these tragic heroes in zombies, particularly in Day of the Dead, when you actually end up rooting for the zombies because the human characters are so loathsome you kind of want to see them die and you cheer on bub you know who's this fantastic creation that howard sherman played this this amazing childlike you know born again human being who's who's figuring out how to listen to music and shave and do all these things and uh and at the end of the film when he manages to slip his bonds you're like go bub go you know and th- and yet they're supposed to be the bad guy in the film it's it's just it's a really nice you know, sort of dichotomy. It's, 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 it's interesting. And the minute they start growling and running and screeching like velociraptors, all disappears. It just becomes about thrills. It's like shouting boo. It's as sophisticated as shouting boo. You're a big zombie enthusiast, I think, as is evident by the fact that you made this feature <laughs> film with that subject and yeah. also your opinions as just stated. Do zombies scare you for real as well as fascinate you they do and i I mean 
I must admit, I uh, I still dream about them. I still have this kind of um, these recurring dreams about being in that situation, which which stem from the, those early movies and specifically Romero's first three zombie films. You know, because he he essentially invented that particular strain of this mythology. He he combined it with the sort of cannibal uh, thing that was going on at the time in the sixties. There was a bit of interesting cannibalism, and he kind of you know added a soupçon of you know the vampiric viral communication thing and a little bit of this a little bit of that and 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 the human flesh thing zombies were originally a, a sort of haitian you know witch doctors who would essentially subdue people with uh digitalis until they appeared to be dead and then they'd be you know they'd be buried and then they'd be dug up and put to work in fields as like cheap labor and then relatives would be walking along and see their dead uncle you know picking cotton and think oh it must be a zombie, you know, and this is where well, I don't know what the truth of that is, but that's that's the mythology that that it, that, that it came from. And then Romero cooked up these extra ingredients, and now we all know the the zombie as being the sort of. In fact, it was Dan O'Bannon that invented the brains thing. Everyone goes, "Oh yeah, brains." That wasn't in Romero's original thing. In Romero's thing, they all they they eat everything. They don't just eat the brains. Anyway, I'm getting super nerdy now. <laughs> um, it's so fun to to talk about something as trivial as this in such in such depth. I think it's I think it's fantastic. I, that's why I love film theory. It's because it's 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 fun, you know. Does it does it actually seem like it's trivial to you? I mean, it, is it different from? Like, uh, do you think it's fundamentally different from another thing that I think people would say is not trivial? Like, I don't know, like James Joyce or Shakespeare or something like that. No, I think ultimately all, all art is probably trivial. You know, it, 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 that's what makes it art and not work. Yeah, it's 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 expression and talking. Whether you're discussing themes in Wuthering Heights or themes in Dawn of the Dead, I think both those things have equal weight. And if you if you say that they don't, then you're being slightly snobby. You know, high art is no more important than low culture. You know, the, the expressions of popular culture are just as much a reflection of our deep psychoanalytical problems as you know Bronte and Shelley and all that kind of stuff I think it's it's probably less important than us sitting here talking about a cure for cancer you know and having a productive conversation about a cure for cancer is far more important really by the way we do have a cure for cancer but we're not going to talk about it we're going to talk about zombies and stuff I've got this test tube in my pocket I've been meaning to talk to you about but it's kind of it's important it's good for the brain whatever you're talking about in terms of theory it's uh, it's nice the nice workout whether whatever whether it's trivial or or life-changing you know the f- films that you and nick frost and edgar wright have made as a team and I, i'll even include paul in this despite the fact that that was directed by greg matola yeah um these are films that are um in part uh in part pastiche in part parody um a, in part celebration of these genres um in in uh Shaun of the Dead it's the romantic comedy and the zombie film in uh Hot Fuzz it's the kind of classic quaint English film combined with the classic outlandish American action movie mm-hmm. um and uh, Paul is this sort of combination of nerd love letter and um uh, friendship film with the kind of magic and wonder of the sort of Spielbergian fantasy yeah. sci-fi type thing. Um, you tell me about how you ended up m- working so much on these movies that were 
then in a way had one foot in their genres and one foot out? I think because, um, because most likely we are making the films that we like to watch. We, I mean, we are part of that generation, that, you know, the sort of post the post-Star Wars generation who grew up on sort of very populist culture, who, who, who grew up after that shift in the cinematic when it became more about sort of, you know, when it did start to get a little younger skewed, you know, you know before Star Wars it was all Bonnie and Clyde and uh, the Corleones and Popeye Doyle, all these characters that were very adult and dark and amoral, Travis Bickle. Um, and then suddenly it was all about Luke Skywalker and, you know, Indiana Jones. And um, not together, though, that would be a great team-up. Um <laughs> But I think, you know, me, Edgar and Nick all grew up watching those films and, and, and our artistic output as a result are sort of us sort of recreating those, you know, in the same way those kids made Raiders shot for shot on video. You know, that's kind of what we're doing because it's what we really know and what we, we have passion for. And, and That's kind of a geek thing. Very much so, to, yeah, yeah. to know something really well so that you can recreate it. But then there's an additional thing, too. Yeah, and also there's the fact that we are, but we're also a comedian. We also come from a comedy background, so these things aren't just iterations of what's gone before. You know, we're trying to use those those styles as metaphors to say other things. You know, I mean, we're not making any great political statements, but um, you know, Shaun of the Dead was very much about the the, the anonymity of, of living in a city where you don't take any notice of anyone around you. It was about growing up. It was about responsibility. Hot Fuzz was about sometimes you have to switch off your brain. You know, sometimes it, it was it was a it was a, a clarion call to to brain deadedness. Hot Fuzz, you know, it was, <laughs> Angel couldn't doesn't become a sort of a rounded, fully rounded figure until he, you know, embraces crap action films. And Paul was 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 probably a kind of reflection of mine and Nick's um, journey to America. You know, finding ourselves working with the likes of Steven Spielberg and and and. Peter Jackson and uh, Quentin Tarantino, these guys that, that you know, we, 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 we made this pilgrimage to this fabled land that we'd looked at all, all, all our lives. And these monumental figures had stepped out of the shadows and they'd just been like normal guys. They're going, hey, what's up? You know, like Paul did. And, and Paul is, is probably, in some respects, the embodiment of, of Spielberg himself, you know, when we met him and, and found him to be this just regular dude, you know. And so there's always more going on than just us hoping to, you know, blindly firing entertainment at people. We they they the, the films do say they work on deeper levels than um than perhaps some other films do, I don't know. Well, Simon, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on the Sound of Young America. It's been a pleasure. Simon Pegg's brand new memoir is called Nerd Do Well, A Small Boy's Journey to Becoming a Big Kid. He's uh featured in among other things uh, the next Star Trek film that is uh, probably as secret as the first one, which was so secret that my friend who worked on it was talking about ferrying people to the set through secret tunnels. True. Um, <laughs> the next the next Mission Impossible film, uh, the Steven Spielberg Tintin film through some kind of robot avatar. <laughs> um, and, of course, his films in the television show Spaced are available on DVD. Thanks again, Simon. Thank you. Thank you. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our music provided by Dan Wally. Our intern is Paulo Balboa. 
You can find us online at MaximumFun.org where you can download any and all of our programs for free, not just The Sound of Young America, but also our comedy shows like the Brotherly Advice Program, My Brother, My Brother, and E, the frankly somewhat unusual Judge Program, Judge John Hodgman, my own comedy talk show, Jordan, Jesse, Go, and much more. It's all free and it's all online at MaximumFun.org. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.